Welcome to the Fellowship College Podcast. Do not listen to the rest of this episode. Well, that was your warning. And so if you're here with us still, you've been warned that this episode is one that we've been probably working on for multiple seasons now, kind of building up for this, because this is the question that we get asked more often than any other one. And so some of you are going to be excited for this. Some of you are going to be nervous. I think in the booth today, we have that combination of emotions and feelings of uh, excitement because this is important and nervousness because it's really, really tricky and there's a lot of division around this. And so before we really dive in, let's just, let's just have a moment of fun because we need that here. Mm -hmm. We need, we need some fun here. And so the question for today, our listeners are, are dying to know, we've been getting so much feedback and comments about this specific question of if you were having guests over to your house and you're going to make dinner for them, what's your go-to meal that you would prep? I have a go-to that I just stumbled upon one day. And I think it's probably my go-to if I was cooking for people because it's the thing I can make the best, but you can also make a lot of it. And it's red beans and rice with either Ooh. chicken or sausage. I'm talking spicy. Yeah. Bring Cajun. Yeah. And I want some cornbread with mm. it. And you just get a the honey cornbread or just the regular cornbread, regular Jiffy cornbread. Okay. Give them an option to put honey on it if they want. Of course. Yeah. yeah there's always honey on yeah, the yeah. table, but big old pot of that spicy cornbread. I mean, I could eat that until I fall mm. asleep. My, our Louisiana listeners are, are nodding along right now. Yeah. That was such a Southern thing for you to say. <laughs> Thank you. Do you not like red beans and rice? I don't think I've ever had. Oh, I, I'm going to make oh. you some red beans and you rice. Like, well, Ila doesn't like spicy though. Yeah, I'll tame I, it down. I can't do spicy. I'll tame it down. Okay. You'll be missing out a little bit, but I'll tame it down for oh, you. Okay. Thank you. Appreciate that. Um, That's a good one. Our go-to, well, my go-to is this like, it's called vegan rainbow pasta. I'm not a vegan. <laughs> I'm not. Vegan rainbow pasta. That sounds like a meme. It's not because it tastes really good. That sounds good. like you just summed up Whole Foods all in one. Right okay, there. okay, okay. Hear me out. This is so good. It's just like a bunch of different like vegetables that are all different colors, like red cabbage or like green pea or like not like little beans and like little beans, little beans <laughs> and like carrots and like some like red peppers and stuff. Is there any pasta involved? Yes. Okay. So you like mix like basically just cut it all up and then you like do some spaghetti in there too. And then you make this like peanut sauce mm -hmm. and like pour it over it. And it's just like vegetables and pasta. Is it cold or hot? Sauce. It's cold, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. it, Not like, a cold pasta it fills you up. It fills you up and it's really good. And it's easy to make like a, a lot ton of. of it. Other go-to meal is Whoa. pizza. No, 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 don't say pizza. that. That's mine. That's mine. No, That's mine. no, 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 no. You already we, had we one. We make the pizza. <laughs> no, 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 please we save make that the for crust. me. I know we do too. We make the no, no, that's mine. You're taking okay. mine. Oh, wow. <laughs> You already wow. gave one. You can't have two. You're going to use your second one to you steal. You said you hate cold pasta. Well, yeah, but that doesn't mean our listeners hate it. I love cold <laughs> pasta. I also love cold pasta. Well, speaking of pizza, <laughs> I'll go next because this is truly mine and Lauren's go-to. We get the crust from Whole Foods. We don't make our own crust, but hot take. 
my dad makes the his own crust and he's probably listening to this right now. He's our number one subscriber. <laughs> and sorry, dad, but the Whole Foods crust is just as good as your like from scratch crust. There we go. I said it. It's wow. out there. It's recorded forever. But we wow. get the Whole Foods crust. We get make a barbecue chicken one, a pesto chicken, some like pepperoni jalapenos, maybe even drizzle a little honey on the mm -hmm. crust. We go all out and you kind of like make them as you go. So we'll have one in the oven while people are coming over and they get there. We'll start eating that one while we put the other one in the oven. And it's just, it's a fun experience. Just feels like very involved and the pizza is so good. So that's our go-to. That's nice. Yeah, you've done Whole that for us before. Okay. Do you ever do pizza, Joanna? Is that ever something uh, that you and Ethan do? Yeah. Make your yeah. own pizza? Yeah, actually. Oh, nice. Yeah. Glad we can share that. But we make the crust. Okay. Oh, okay. So you just, it's like a waste of time. It's better. It's not. We're about, to have, a, we're about to have a pizza off. We should. I've had them yes. both. I've had them both. It's it's the same. The Whole Foods crust is just as good. All right. We'll see. Book out and I will judge. We'll see. Please. Um, on that note, I have recently loved um, just cutting up sweet potatoes and broccoli and um, like turkey sausage and then just like throwing that in the oven and just having that little combination of things, you know, mm. um, drizzle some balsamic on it, some seasonings. Oh, so good. Uh, and it's really easy. And I just live with a tub of cookie dough just always in my mm. fridge so uh you know we can have that for dessert you what know? type of cookie dough toll house okay yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah do you eat it straight out of the tub or do you cook it yes yeah same for both yeah. Okay. oh yeah i, I will eat some cookie dough while there are cookies in the oven yeah. like mm -hmm. ice cream kind of absolutely yeah that's the move so that's my meal that's good we should all try each other's meals this sounds fun mm -hmm. just a little team bonding experience um, anyway, no transition. That was just some, some fun that we had today because we're going to try and dive deep into a really important um, passage and a really divisive passage. Um, and the question that we're going to try and answer today is what are, what are the roles for women in ministry? Are they the same roles that men have? Are they different? How do we know? What does the Bible say? And how do we practically walk forward through this? And so I think it would just be helpful to start. I think if, if you've even like dipped your toe into this conflict and into this topic, there's two words that are, that are used to describe the sides. One is called complementarian and one is called egalitarian. And that's kind of kind of be where we're going to go today is we're going to try and see both sides, see how both sides would, um, would interpret this first Timothy passage that we'll be walking through. And then how do we practically go from there? And so, um, do you, do, does anyone want to kind of walk us through what each side means and what, what they kind of stand for? complementarian egalitarian yeah i can walk us through complementarian um i think something that a lot of us come to the table with that's actually not the interpretation of complementarian is that this side views women as less of less value than men but in reality it says no women and men are valued equally as human beings created in the image of god 
um, but simply that they have different roles and are created to do different things. So separate roles, equal value. Um, and the egalitarian one basically says same value, same roles as, as well. So basically that there's no difference in, um, number one, the value of men and women, and number two, what they can do um, as far as roles and leading the church body, et cetera. Yeah, and the egalitarian would be the same opportunity for roles. It's not necessarily yes. like men and women absolutely have to be doing the exact same role in some situation, but rather that they are both capable, built for it, and should be given the opportunity if skill set is yeah. there. Yeah. That's good. And so what is a healthy egalitarian look like and what does a healthy complementarian look like because a lot of times the people that are the loudest in this discussion are the ones that potentially aren't healthy and so I think what we what we want to see today is that you can be an egalitarian and you can be a complementarian and be faithfully following Jesus be faithfully looking at the scriptures and and are actually trying to to be obedient to what God has for the church. And so that's what we want to see today. So what, what could a healthy egalitarian look like? We can start there. Yeah. The, um, I think on both sides, first off, if you, whatever camp you might fall into to be healthy is to take, drive this from the scriptures and have a really good reason as to why that you're falling into that camp not allowing primarily experience or cultural aspects to shape a really uh, convictional stance on it. Not that those don't play into it, but as believers sitting under the authority of the scripture, we ought to be um, diving in, searching and having those reasons. And so, uh, yeah, healthy egalitarian, you know, it depends on the situation um, or rather the setting maybe that you're describing that. So, you know, we're going to be talking a lot about kind of formal church leadership um, which I would even make a distinction between like that and then just saying ministry. It's like believers are, we do the work of the ministry as a whole. And so it's, it's really looking at more of like the, the formal church leadership, but then you also have other aspects of, okay, how does that play out into culture? Society has a plan to family life is a big one, which Ephesians talks about things like that. And so if we're talking about, you know, formal church leadership, the kind of what a healthy egalitarian stance might look like is that, um, you know, you have a, um, if you have like a teaching team for your church, maybe there's a woman teacher up there as well as, as men. So um, honestly, and I'm not saying that this is absolutely their stance, but I know that Bridgetown in Portland, which a lot of our listeners are familiar with, um, there's a woman there by the name of Bethany um, who serves as a teaching pastor there. That would be a flare of kind of healthy egalitarian stance um, as far as a formal church leadership. Again, I'm not saying that that is the stance that Bridgetown holds. I actually don't know officially what their stance is, but just by that being there, that would be an example, um, of that, but not, not having, um, not having a really, um, negative view, I guess. I, I think you can kind of get into some unhealth on the egalitarian stance as to, um, removing all distinctions between men and women, that's not healthy egalitarian. And then you can also, which I think a lot of it's just fueled by culture to flip the script um, and then start pointing at any type of complementarian or leadership discussion as like, no, that's evil, that's bad. 
Um, and so those would be kind of some unhealth in egalitarian. And so as long as that's not happening, then you're probably going to be functioning pretty well as a healthy egalitarian leadership role anyways. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's helpful. A word that I would use for both sides for health would be humility. I think there has to be humility when looking at the, the passages, when looking at what these roles would actually look like for men and for women. A lot of the unhealth comes from just arrogance and, and pride and looking at the other side and almost scoffing at them and looking, looking down upon them. Specifically for the egalitarian, and this is what you said, I think the pitfall for, for egalitarians is to focus mainly on culture and what seems to be right and good and, and kind of use the Bible as a secondary source. And so for, for our egalitarian listeners out there, our encouragement today is going to be, hey, you can totally land where you land, but do so while looking at these these passages and taking time. And that's going to be, some of y'all are going to be really frustrated with us by the end of this. And we, we know that because we're not going to give you our opinions. We're not going to give you our stance. And we're actually, the main goal of this is, is to challenge you, whether you're complementarian or egalitarian, we want to challenge you and push you to actually do the hard work yourself. We want you to actually look at these passages that we're about to dive into. We want you to actually ask the right questions and then start to form your opinion. And just a heads up, you, this could take years of studying and processing and asking questions before you actually land somewhere. And I want you to know that's okay. And just to step into that as well, we've said it before, and I mean, I'm never going to stop saying this. When we find our stances on scripture, it is not based on what we want to be true or what we hope scripture is saying, because as soon as we um, put our desires into scripture and make it say whatever we want it to say, it is it's meaningless. Um, scripture cannot just mean whatever the person interpreting it wants it to mean. Um, scripture has truth and there's an absolute truth. And if we are going to be responsible and respectful to the word of God, we have to be looking at it and studying it with the mindset of, okay, what was the author intending to get across? And that's that does take work, like Josh was saying. We have to be able to step into those layers of, okay, this was written in a different language. This was written to a different sp- people group. This was written in a different time period where the culture was different than it is today. And we have to process through those layers and put in the work of understanding how this would have hit its original audience and what the original audience author was trying to say. So as you are diving into, say, this topic specifically of complementarianism versus egalitarianism, you have to check yourself and say, okay, I might have a bent towards desiring one stance over the other. I'm going to be mindful of that as I am reading these incredibly wise scholars who have invested their lives in this topic. And maybe I'm going to make sure I read some of the opposite stances a little bit more than I do the stance that I'm leaning towards. That's good. And so health on both sides is is humility, but for specifically if we're talking about a healthy complementarian, I think one thing that I, 
that I see done poorly from a lot of those that would call themselves maybe strict complementarians. You, you have what's called generous complementarian and strict complementarian, and we'll get into that in a little bit. But a lot of times the the strict complementarians, they don't see the actual people that are involved. Everything is very black and white and very literal, and they don't see the the people that are actually involved with this. And so I think that's so important. That comes with that humility aspect of, hey, this is, we would classify this as a secondary doctrine. This is not primary to, to the gospel or salvation, but that does not mean that it's not important. That does not mean that this doesn't have a huge effect and implication on tons of people, specifically women who make up over half the church. Like this is vital for us because it has tremendous implications for, for women in the church. And so the second we try to remove the actual people involved in this, we've lost that, that humility. And then we, then we just become dogmatic and we, we find ourselves in, in a really harmful and, and hurtful places. And so because of time, I really, I really want to, to dive into this passage. And so there's a couple passages that you can go to. And so if you're listening, there's like first Corinthians 11 all the way through 14, but today we're going to, going to dive into first Timothy two, and we're going to read from verse eight. Uh, we'll go all the way through 15, the end of the chapter. So starting in verse eight, someone want to read that? Yeah, I'll read it. This is Paul um, writing. So I want men to pray in every place, lifting up holy hands without anger or dispute. Likewise, the women are to dress in suitable apparel with modesty and self-control. Their adornment must not be with braided hair and gold or pearls or expensive clothing, but with good deeds as is proper for women who profess reverence for God. A woman must learn quietly with all submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. She must remain quiet for Adam was formed first and then Eve and Adam was not deceived, but the woman because she was fully deceived fell into transgression, but she will be delivered through childbearing if she continues in the faith and love and holiness with self-control. And that was from the net version. Nice. So what's going on here? Walk us through just, I know we don't have a ton of time, but this is just surface level. What's some context that our, our listeners need to know with this passage? Well, like Bookout said, this is Paul speaking, and he is writing to his friend Timothy, who is pastoring, leading the church in Ephesus. So this is about 62, 66 AD. So if we put that into perspective, this is about 30 years after um, Christ was crucified on the cross. And Paul um, is writing in the context um, to Timothy in Ephesus, which is a city that is today in um, Turkey. And this city was home to the Temple of Artemis. And the church that he's writing to is going to be full of, of Jews and Gentiles. Um, but this city, because it has the Temple of Artemis in it, um, the, the people would have been steeped in, in the culture of that and what that looked like. And so for y'all who aren't up to date with your uh, 
Greco-Roman gods and and all of that, um, which I know most of you are. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Um, well, Percy this is just Jackson. A re- this is just a refresher for everybody. <laughs> um, Artemis was the goddess of chastity, hunting, um, childbirth, fertility, all of that. Specifically in Ephesus, she was. Um, more known as the goddess of fertility and she was a twin. So she had, um, is it, is it Apollos or Apollo? Is there an S on the end of his name? I can't remember. But anyway, so that, that was her twin brother. And so according to Greek mythology, um, she was born and gods are born fully formed. And she watched her mother give birth to her twin brother. And in Greek mythology, she saw the pain that childbirth brings. And so the culture in this city is just looking at Artemis, worshiping Artemis, this goddess who is the goddess who brings protection to women in um, their pregnancy and in their childbirth. And so this was just something that everyone, especially the people in this church, they would have been familiar with. So that's what's going on. 30 years after Christ was crucified, um, Paul had been here, a church had been started here, and now Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, who is trying to pastor this church. And and really the letter of 1 Timothy is um, giving us a lot of directives on how the church should be structured and just warning um, against false teachers. And, and of course, he's sharing the gospel amidst all of that. But that's that context. That's good. And so, so somebody summarize what Paul just said in these seven or eight verses in, in light of that context, what what is he saying to this church? And then we'll try and we'll try and view that from an egalitarian side and from a complementarian side. But to sum it up, what what's he saying here? Yeah, the, I think the the really big main point of this is that he um, he's instructing Timothy on how to lead and instruct the believers who are part of this congregation as to what their life should look like in contrast to the world, to the the culture of Ephesus that um, is not under the authority of God. Uh, and so he, he starts off in, in uh, verse eight and he mentions something about the men, um, which he'll talk about later as well. And then he spends a longer section that we read referring to um, things that he says, hey, this is what you should tell the women to do. Um, and it's, uh, which we might dive into some of the even more context of all these things, but it is ways of living that is opposite of the ungodly ways in Ephesus in order to um, basically make Jesus's name great amongst the Ephesians. Yeah, that's good. And so it's ways of living and also, conducting yourselves inside and outside of these, these church gatherings that, mm-hmm. that we would, we would call them. And so he's saying, Hey, for the men, when you gather here, here's what you need to know. Here's how to do this in a way that is holy and honoring to God. And for the women, here's, here's what you need to know how to do this in a way that's holy and honoring to God. And as you said, this is a way that kind of pushes against the culture. This is, this is, honors God because it's, it's separate. It's set apart from everything that, that the culture is doing kind of like the context Eileen gave. Mm-hmm. And even looking at this passage specifically in verse nine, Paul is, is telling the woman, Hey, like we are not coming to gather for this to be a social club where the really wealthy people that are here are, are showing off all of their expensive jewelry and, and clothing and all of that. We're here to worship and this is how we worship. And so from this context, we can, 
kind of see, hey, there were people, Jews and Gentiles, there would have been people from different um, economic classes and all of that. And Paul is pointing out, we're not here to try and make people feel bad for what they're wearing or um, just like flaunting our wealth. That's not being modest. That's not being humble. And so that's just another addition into that context as well. And so he says the man to the man, pray without anger or quarreling, probably meaning in in that church context in Ephesus, there was a lot of division, anger, quarreling, maybe had something to do with cultural differences, socioeconomic differences. And then he turns to the women and says, when you gather, don't adorn yourselves with all this, this fancy apparel or with uh, braids or pearls or a costly attire, um, but with good works. And then we get to what I would say is the divisive part. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people would, would hear those first couple of verses and say, okay, yeah, yeah, we agree on that. We agree on that. And then he says, let a woman, this is from the ESV, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Already bells are, and alarms are going off in our heads. And Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. Pause. Let's let's talk about that. That is jarring. Can I say that? That's that's a little shocking. He says women should be quiet and they should I permit I do not permit them to have authority over a man. So let's talk about it. Mm-hmm. From a complementarian perspective, what's going on here? What, what would you say from a complementary complementarian perspective, what is Paul trying to say to the church in Ephesus through Timothy? Well, I was going to say, I think we should look at these words and yeah. figure out, okay, what, what do these words mean? What does Paul say? Women should be quiet. Um, and I think it's important to address, hey, back in verse 11, he's saying, let women learn quietly. Um, this word quiet, um, it doesn't mean, hey, don't talk, never talk. Like no noise, right, right, right. silence. Um, because earlier in, in um, scripture, we see that Paul is saying, hey, like when women prophesy and when they pray, like blah, blah, blah. And so he's not saying women can never speak. Um, this word quiet can also mean like peaceable or tranquil. Um, and so this idea is not um, that they can't speak. It's that hey, there may have been just a lot of disruptions going on in the church, um, especially because women weren't often educated. And so they could have been asking a lot of these questions. So when it says, um, I think it's actually earlier in 1 Timothy, you'll have to correct me, Josh, Um, but when it's saying like women, or maybe it's the 1 Corinthians passage, like women should like ask their husbands at home these questions. Like we have to, to remember this is huge that Paul is even saying, hey, let women learn. That's that's a big deal. Um, and so this quiet aspect is not saying y'all can't talk. And it's the same word that Paul uses elsewhere when he talks about when you're living among outsiders, live, we, we translate it, live peaceably. Mm-hmm. It's that it's the exact same word. He's not saying when you're living among outsiders, don't ever speak a word, mm-hmm. be silent. He's saying avoid quarrels, avoid disruption, avoid unnecessary arguments and chaos. 
Yeah. Uh, even earlier in chapter two, he says, hey, I want you to live a peaceful and quiet life. So yeah, just avoiding that chaos. So let's be clear, this quiet thing, I feel like is easier to address. <laughs> and then we get to um, uh, this next word, which is authentane in the Greek. Um, and this is the the word for authority. When it says in 12.2, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, um, this is where it can get more uh, divisive and we can see more differences in the different camps. Um, but if I may, for a second, just talk about this word authority, uh, because I love, thank, thank you so much for, for allowing me to do that. Oh, somebody said help. <laughs> I, give you, I give you my blessing and oh, permission. Thank you so much. <laughs> um, okay. We love a good word study. If you look in the Greek, this word authority um, is authentane. Now, this is the only time this word is used in all of scripture. There's a really fancy name for it, Come Josh. On. You want to no, say it? No, I want you to say it. I do love this word, <laughs> but go a, ahead. It's a hapex legomenon, and that just means it's a word that is not used elsewhere in scripture. And this is sad because what Bible interpreters will do is when you have someone writing a letter and we're trying to clarify the meaning, um, the author's intention behind that, we look at their other letters or we look where they've used this word before so we can kind of help um, breathe some context into it and see their intention. But because this word isn't used elsewhere in scripture, we, we can't go to scripture to see where even other authors have used it. And so we have to look outside of scripture and look at um, other pieces of literature that were circulating during this time that were using this word authentane. And so when we do that, um, scholars have kind of compiled different works that were in kind of like 100-year buffers around this time of how the culture was using this word authentane. And overall, it has a negative context to the word authority. And that can range from uh, murder to domineering to control to authority. Some it's, sort of abuse. Yes, abuse. Yeah, exactly. So, and, um, and, and there's other words for authority, right? Yes, there are. So there's a more common word that Paul does use and we do see within scripture. It's called exousia. And that is a just a, a more general term for authority. So it's important to realize, hey, Paul was doing something on purpose. He was being intentional with the word authentane that he was using in this passage when he says, I do not allow women to have authority over men. And that is my um, description of these Greek words. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Eileen. That was incredible. This, I do think this is important for um, just having a conversation about this, especially as, hey, we're challenging you guys, go do the hard work, read into this study, kind of land where you think the scriptures are leading you. And I just want to throw a couple things out there to show you why people are pretty split over this yeah. between complementarian, egalitarian view, just from the, um, the word context of it. So if you just look at verse 12, there's kind of like four big questions that you have to wrestle with, um, authentane being one of those words. And so you got to look at, okay, what does Paul mean by epitrepo, which is I'm not permitting, I'm not allowing it's the beginning of it. And then it gets to to assume or to have authority, which is authentane. And then you get into to teach or to be teaching. And then you also have to wrestle with this uh, weird grammatical thing um, that he's basically saying neither nor. I neither permit women to do this nor do this. And some we already looked at authentane. Um, the teaching aspect, you got to ask questions like, okay, is Paul attributing teaching to 
also have some type of kind of negative correlation like Authentane seems to have because elsewhere he doesn't. And he could have said, he says all the time, hey, don't do false teaching. Don't do these these um, wrong teachings, but he doesn't. Uh, and obviously that would make sense. He's, he's going to say, hey, don't false teach. So it doesn't seem like it would be that. So does teaching also have a negative connotation to Authentane? Um, and if it does, then why is that? Uh, and then whenever you get to the neither nor aspect, this phrase is only ever used with, there's two options for this. Either you have two positives, neither this nor this, and they're both positive things, or it's two negative things, neither this nor this. And so if authentane's negative, then maybe it seems like that teaching should be also negative. Uh, and then the other option is that it's a phrase where there's two overlapping concepts that are kind of being put on top of each other in order to drive a main point. And so with each of these textual things that you have to pull out, you can kind of lean either one way or another. Um, if it's all negative kind of con uh, context, I like what you were saying. Well, that kind of pulls it more towards maybe this is a really specifically cultural thing that's happening. He's trying to communicate one thing and it's not universal. Um, if it's the other direction, then maybe it is a lot more universal. And so that would lean into more of a complementarian um, role structure type aspect. And so just know that even if you're only looking at the words, it's really hard to figure out exactly which way he's going with it, which forces you into context, which obviously that makes it even harder. Um, and so whenever you're doing the work, know that, but then also be aware of that whenever you're discussing this with people, if you are, that um, this is really hard. And there are scholars who devote years to this, who don't land exactly where they think that they're at. And so my challenge is just don't argue from a place of conviction when maybe you, you don't know this 100%. Um, because it's a really, really hard just sentence to even um, dissect. Yeah. So if your head is spinning right now, yep. uh, that's because this is a really dense topic and there are so many different layers and factors that play into it. And to add one more mm -hmm. question and layer is even how you even translate the word man or woman. Is it singular? Is it plural? Because a lot of times singular man or singular woman can actually be the same as husband or wife. And so a lot of times when we see, I do not permit a man to teach or a woman to teach over a man. Well, is he talking about all women and all men or is he teaching? It's a singular, singular tense. So maybe is he talking about a husband and a wife? And again, this is another area where there's disagreement and it leads to some people following, falling more into the egalitarian side, some people falling more into the complementarian side. And so we're just, if, if you're thinking, wow, I have way more questions than <laughs> answers and I have more questions than I did even at the beginning of this podcast, <laughs> that was the point. Mm -hmm. And so do we. And so again, we're just trying to help you to ask the right questions and then do the work and to see that this, this actually matters. And the hard part is we haven't even gotten to the most tricky and confusing part of the passage. Maybe, maybe one of the trickiest passages in the whole Bible, if I can say that, is how this passage ends. And I know there's a lot more that we could say about what we just talked about. It says, for Adam was formed first. This is almost Paul trying to give a defense for what he just said. He says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, 
but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with (laughs) self-control. What in the world is going on here? Bro, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There are different stances on this. Um, and Josh, I'm going to have you explain the more complementarian stance because I think you do that really well and, and you explained it earlier today. Um, but one of the stances from an egalitarian standpoint um, is emphasizing the um, cultural aspect with the Temple of Artemis. Um, and again, you're going to have to go and, and do the research on this because I'm not going to do this justice um, in the way that it was once explained to me. But with the whole you will be saved through childbearing, um, I've heard the argument that um, <laughs> the the temple um, of Artemis, because she is the goddess of, um, she's the midwife goddess, goddess of protection over childbirth and, and pregnancy and all that, um, the stance understands this passage as saying, hey, if you um, continue to, you know, honor your husband and uh, like basically allow yourselves to conceive and have a baby, then the Lord will bless you because um, at at this point, there is some historical context that says um, women were not desiring to have children because, I mean, if you think about it, y'all, the... (laughs) Healthcare has advanced so much since, you know, 66 AD and women, um, it like in labor, the death toll was so high and for both the mom and the baby. So pregnancy was a scary thing. And so there was just this movement within this, um, uh, temple cult that was kind of, um, proposing that women just stop having kids. And so, oh, like you'll be saved through childbearing. Hey, like the Lord is going to bless you through, um, you know, staying faithful to this idea of being fruitful and multiplying. So that is one egalitarian stance. But Josh, do you want to, to tap in with a more complementarian? I'll give, I'll give one, one of the stances. <laughs> I, I wouldn't say, again, we're not saying where we land on any of this, this is a this is a really tough passage to know what what's going on here. This is one that you you read and you're like, okay, context it is definitely crucial. I wish I wish I could sit down with Paul and Timothy and say, "Hey, remember you said this? Paul, remember when you said this to Timothy? Dude, can you just enlighten me? I have no clue what you're talking about." Honestly, in heaven, this will be one of those passages. I'll go to Paul and be like, what what am I missing out on in 2023 that maybe would have been a little more clear back in the first century? And, and I think he has an answer. I just don't know for sure what that answer is. And so one of the other stances on what, what he's talking about is he's going all the way back to Genesis 1 to 3 because a lot of the complementarian versus egalitarian arguments fall along the lines of headship and submission. What is God's design for relationships, specifically talking about marriage? That's what Genesis 1 through 3 is talking about. He talks about this in Ephesians 5. And the question is, is he talking about just general men and general women, or is he still talking about marriage? And then how does that relate to roles in the church? So headship and submission is key here. Just a side note, this Mm -hmm total tangent. When we look at the Trinity 
there's similar things going on here. Everyone, every Orthodox scholar and theologian and pastor would say all three members of the Trinity are completely equal in glory, all equally God, all equally deserving glory, but are different and distinct in their, their roles. Anyway, that's just a side thing. And so he would say the same thing about marriage depends on what stance you, I'm not, I'm not trying to show my cards here. But so here, the complementarian stance would say in regards to headship and authority and submission, he's going all the way back to Genesis, specifically Genesis 2 and into Genesis 3, where he's saying Adam was formed first and Eve then was was formed from Adam, signifying that there's some sort of role here, that Adam played this this role of, of leader and as head, as protector even, you can say. And, but that role was twisted not only by Eve, but by Adam. When we look at the sin in Genesis 3, Adam was, was punished just as severely as Eve was, even though Paul says here, Eve is the transgressor. He's not saying Eve was the only one at fault. He's saying, Eve was deceived, and in light of this passage, a lot of people would say Eve was deceived because she tried to usurp Adam's role as authority. She tried to take over the responsibility as head or leader and was the one trying to make the decisions. And so Eve was the one that was deceived and transgressed, and Adam uh, sinned as well out of passivity, like letting Eve take over the the role that God had given him. And so Adam is equally at fault. And so he, so Paul is trying to point us back to Genesis three and saying uh, that Eve was deceived and became a transgressor, not, not following the roles that God had, had clearly given them through creation And then he says, but she will be saved through childbearing. And anyone that knows her Old Testament well, anyone that knows Genesis 3 well, that part of the the curse that God gives to the serpent for deceiving, he says that, that the offspring of the woman would eventually crush the offspring of the serpent, that, that the offspring of the woman, his heel would bruise the head of the serpent, basically saying that it's through this woman's offspring that the serpent would eventually be destroyed and the offspring of Adam and Eve would would find salvation. And I would say the majority of scholars and theologians point to this as the first sign of a coming Messiah. And they would say, this is fulfilled in Jesus, because you have this lineage, this offspring that goes all the way down to Jesus, and he conquers sin, conquers death, and that's how salvation comes through that. Again, does that answer every question? There's still any, the reason there's so much division here and so much controversy, controversy is because it doesn't seem like one side answers all the questions. Yeah. And I mean, we're only specifically talking about first Timothy two today, but Josh mentioned a few other passages earlier. 
we have to kind of tap into this systematic theology side of our brain a little bit and look at all of the passages that talk about men and women and roles and differences and similarities and all of that. Because there are passages that talk about men and women specifically in ministerial context or worship context or household dynamics. And so we, we can't establish a doctrine or a stance on something based on one passage, especially if it's a controversial passage. So we have to look at all of these passages and, and try and understand in the best that we can, what is the author intending for us to know? That's really good. And so I'm literally looking at the clock right now and I can't believe we've already been going for 45 minutes because this is one of those things. There's so much we could say, and there's been books and books and books and books written about it. We actually were listening to a podcast this week where there's nine episodes just on this topic, and each episode is anywhere between an hour and a half and three hours long mm-hmm. on on just this topic. And so, again, this is hopefully just scratching the surface. Hopefully, it's bringing up the right questions for you to ask. And we want you to go and do the work. But I think, even though we're already running long, I think we would be amiss if we didn't talk about how does this actually impact our students that are listening to this? Like we said at the very beginning that although this is a secondary doctrine, it is so important because of the implications that it has specifically on women in the church. Like the, some of the questions that get brought up are, can, can women be elders? What does it mean for a woman to be pastor? What would that role look like? How about deacons? Can there be deacons? Okay, well, what what age can women teach other other men? Can, can they be youth pastors? Can they be college pastors? Can they lead worship? Can what does that look like? Is there a certain amount that they're allowed to, to speak on, on stage? Like what the implications of this could go on for a long, long time. What about parachurch ministry? What if you're, you're at a church where your elders say, Hey, we have, we given you the authority to, to teach as a woman, but what if you go speak at a different conference or speak at a different church? If you're, if your elders give you the authority, does that mean that, another church, you can have that same authority there. Are you under the authority of their elders when you go there? And so there's a lot, what does this mean about baptism and communion, the ordinances of the church? Can a woman uh, partake in these, not partake, can they administer? administer, Thank you. Can, Can a woman administer these ordinances of the church? And so what do we do with that? What are some practical ways, whether we land egalitarian, complementarian, or, or hopefully there's a lot of listeners right now that are, are now like, I have no idea where I land. How, how do, how do we go forward from here? Yeah, I, um, a big challenge that I would give to people because this is a very important part of life for a believer. And that is your, um, participation in a local church. And so as you are studying this, um, as you are forming your own opinion, uh, like Eileen mentioned, you will have a lean one way or the other, even if you haven't really thought about this before. 
Um, but especially if you get into it, you'll have start to have a, a harder lane after you graduate, whether you're staying around here um, or wherever it is that you might be listening, or maybe you've already graduated and you're plugged into a local church or you're looking to get into one. Um, this is something that you should look into as far as where your local church stands on this, because it will, as Josh said, impact basically everything that happens in that church. And so if you have the exact opposite opinion and you have a good reason for it, that is a qualification um, of a church that you're potentially looking at getting involved in, that might be a conversation you need to have with uh, the leaders of the church to figure out if you know, you're, that's going to really drive well, um, being a part of that church. Uh, and then also once you are involved or as you are involved in a local church, um, there, there absolutely is an aspect of, um, authority structures in life. Just generally, we're talking about this with men and women, but in general, that is hundred percent true. We sit under the authority of God and the scriptures and then all these other things that he's put in place and the leadership of our local churches are also one. Uh, and so for a healthy local church, whether they land complementarian or egalitarian, they are being faithful to God and doing the work of figuring out, Hey, I think this is what scripture is saying. This is how we're going to structure how we go about doing local church. And if you are a part of that local church, it is your responsibility as a member to submit to the authority of your leaders. Even if you don't land exactly where they land, maybe you're a little more left or right on that spectrum just with this topic or any other topic. Um, that's great. That'll happen with whatever church you go to. But a call to respect and fall into the authority um, and to just honor and um, not think pridefully against any type of leadership in your church, I think is a big challenge because the environment we live in um, and just in our culture does the opposite of that with a lot of types of authority. And that's not how we're called as followers of Jesus to live. So with local church, consider where you land and then where that church lands. Um, and then also whatever church you get plugged into, honor the authority in it. Mm, that's really good. And we don't want to just, we would love to hear from the ladies, obviously on this, on this topic. And so what else would y'all add to that? <laughs> <clears throat> oh my. Well, uh, I can say, like we've been saying this entire podcast, that this is something that truly does need to be considered because it is important and it does impact the way that you may worship, the way that you may learn. And, um, and specifically, if you are a woman going into ministry or a woman in ministry, this is going to impact the way that you serve in that ministry. And I can tell y'all the last three weeks, I have been crying nonstop. And everyone in this podcast booth has probably seen me cry within the last few weeks, just as I've been processing through these scriptures and, and talking to the Lord and saying, okay, Lord, like, what are you intending out of this? Am I understanding this correctly? What may I not be understanding correctly because ultimately we as followers of Jesus are called to submit our lives to Jesus. Whether that is in the way that we worship, the way that we teach, the way that we care for other people, our entire lives are meant to be submitting to him. And so, I mean, just personally for me over the last few weeks, it's just been a, a just struggle of, <clears throat> okay, Lord, I want to be faithful to what you're saying, would you allow me to understand your scripture better to be able to understand it in the correct way? But ultimately, it is a topic that's important, and it impacts so many people in so many spheres that if you're a follower of Jesus, um, there are probably people in your life that have thought about this if you haven't yourself. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'd say regardless of what side you land on, like ladies be encouraged <laughs> that like the Lord values mm-hmm. you and your womanhood and that you have like glory, like that is a blessing um, to be who you are and that you have things to offer and you have things to give. And regardless of what side you land on, that what you have to offer is really valuable. And the Lord asks you to bring that to the table. Um, So yeah, just be confident in your identity in Christ and that um, this actually should give you a lot of value as you're studying um, and reading the scriptures that you should be affirmed in your value um, as a person that is created in the image of God. So That's really good. And so as we wrap up, I almost just want to say, I'm sorry to the women out there that are, that are listening to this, that have to navigate a lot of really hard things that, that the men in the church don't have to navigate. And this has been, this has been so, this is so tricky. I wish, I wish that it was black and white and, and clear and, and that we, we could just have this really easy solution to this. And even just in my life, my wife, Lauren, like one of the reasons I married her is because she has just incredible gifts of leadership and teaching. Like she's someone that, that people just want to, to follow. And I've, I've learned so much from her. I've learned so much from Eileen and, and Joanna. I feel like I'm, I'm constantly learning from these incredible women in my life. And so I'm sorry that, that it's not, it's not black and white and it's not clear. And I want us to just continue to, to navigate these scriptures together, continue to go to God in prayer. And if you're frustrated, go to God with your frustration, bring people in on this and let's continue to seek God's will in our, in our own lives and in the churches that were involved him and try the best of our ability to be as faithful as we can, whether we land in one side or the other side. And so if, uh, as always, if you have questions, we want to keep talking. We want this just to be the first of many conversations. And so until next week, grace, grace and peace. peace.